What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me today. I'm joined today by Alex and Pia from one of my favorite podcasts, Crimes from the East. I am thrilled to be working with you. I'm a little fangirling today as I'm sitting here in the studio with a little bit of red face. But we are going to be collaborating all about Queen Victoria and her rotten crimes against India. And I'll let Pia go into the details of what her crimes were. On this episode, I will be delving into the early life and midlife of the Queen Victoria. And then I'll hand it over to Pia and she will educate us on the crimes against India that she committed or that were committed in her name. History is often taught to us from a very one-sided point of view. Even while researching this queen of colonialism, a lot of the information I came across was only about her grief from losing her husband and mother, her relationships with two of her male servants, and the riches and wealth that she obtained for Britain. A lot of digging was required to bring to light some of the rotten things she either did or that were done in her name. Allow me to introduce you to the rotten majesty herself, Queen Victoria of Great Britain. The queen who stole trillions of dollars and one of the world's most famous diamonds from a boy king and his country. The sun never sets on the British Empire is a phrase often quoted during her reign. So let's learn some about the colonial devil queen. Well, hello, Josh. Thank you, thank you, thank you for having us on. We are so thrilled to be talking about this because uh, the colonial devils are our bread and butter and the thing <laughs> that keep us going. I love it. All right. So, yeah. Nice to meet you, Josh. Hey, Josh. Nice to meet you, lady. Well, I've met uh, Pia before once at CrimeCon. I got the name right. <laughs> And it is nice to meet you, Alex. I've seen your food Instagram, but there was only like one picture of you. I was stalking you. I was like, I, I like to know faces before. I'm like, 
I'm having a bit of a social media branding crisis, but yeah, nice to meet you too. I'm super excited that we're doing this. Um, blushing when you were giving us some compliments there. I'm obsessed with your podcast name just to begin with, and you cover some really interesting topics. Oh, thank so you. It's cool to be doing this little collab. I am excited. Fun fact: my podcast was originally supposed to be called Dicks in History because I am a gay man and. We saw the humor potential in that, but then advertisers were like, can you do something a little more public friendly? I was like, okay. That's where Rotten to the Core came from. <laughs> I would have also been obsessed with, what was it, Dixon History? Dixon History, because boy, do I know my dicks. <laughs> that would have been such a great catchphrase and everything. Rotten old wieners. <laughs> <laughs> Ask me about my wiener. <laughs> the Ask me about my winner! <laughs> Whoops. How do you know my search history? <laughs> I'm basically a detective, remember Josh? Even with strangers, I'll meet them and after I leave, I'm like, boy, they know way too much about me now <laughs> for that first encounter. <laughs> That's the upshot of oversharing. You're unprivateable. You're unblackmailable. I wonder if you become interested in true crime and then you start to overshare or you're an oversharer and then you become interested in true crime. Because I feel like we have a chicken and egg situation here. <laughs> totally. I feel like because we consume so much about crime and criminals that we have so much information in our brains that we can't like always share with everyone. And we're like, you have to know this. I have to tell you. Right. You won't believe this. Spill the tea. <laughs> and I'm a sucker for fun facts. Like, my brain is half filled with just useless fun facts about random stuff. And I shared on Facebook a fun fact I'll read later in the episode that you will probably find hilarious because I sure did. Yeah, Alex <laughs> is our fun fact girl. She comes up with all kinds of random things that we may or may not need to really know. <laughs> I heard in your last episode, I listened this morning, and then I heard you drop a fun fact, and I was like, oh, good, she does it too. I was like, perfect. I've heard that it's a Leo thing, but I don't know. Like, what's your sign? I'm a Libra. I'm about balance. I'll overshare, and then I'll hate myself for it. <laughs> I can't believe I did that. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, like, we're on the same page, except we have a third step where we're like, yeah, they liked it. They must have liked it. <laughs> they liked it. They, they like better. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell us all about this uh, colonial devil queen, Josh. Yes. Colonial devil queen. I'm excited. I've been using that phrase so much. Even the other men in the office, they're like, her name's Victoria. Will you just call it like, it's easier. To, it's one word, Victoria. <laughs> I'm like, it's not as fun. It doesn't roll off the tongue as Seriously. colonial devil queen. And it makes me want there to be like a gothic horror movie about this story. Can we have that, please, oh universe? Yes, please. <laughs> uh, if you've seen my ads on TikTok or Instagram, that's kind of my look yeah, when I go into care. The not so evil queen character is like gothic. Love it. I was the emo kid in school, but basically as a disguise, I'm sitting there, you know, black and long hair, but I have like a smile on my face <laughs> and I'm like, hi, how are you today? Oh, school, right? Oh. <laughs> You're I blessing your heart through school? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was. I was voted most likely to never come back. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I'm always like, maybe I wasn't as nice as I thought I was. <laughs> they always say if you weren't bullied in school, you might have been the bully. And I was never bullied once. And I was like, uh-oh. Is, are the, you know, is a story going to come out later where someone's like, you were so mean to me? <laughs> I I'm sorry. once ran into a kid from my high school in the post office like 10 years later. Am I that old? Oh, my God. Anyways, he turned around and asked me if I went to the high school that we went to. I didn't recognize him at all. And I said, yes. And he said, I think I recognize you. You were the girl who swore all the time. You had the dirtiest <laughs> mouth I had ever heard in my life. And I was like, oh, Thank oh my you. God. I had no idea that I, that was my. <laughs> you were the vulgar yeah. girl. At school. <laughs> I figured I had gone totally under the radar. No one remembered me. Just in and out of there. Alex, you know. the best defense is that is not me. And how dare you assume all of us look the same? <laughs> I would never. White devil. <laughs> you white devil. <laughs> we don't all look the same. <laughs> See, we had a girl that her nickname was Hot Dog. And at least you weren't, you know, he wasn't like, oh, are you the girl that girl. used the hot dog? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, take, I'll take my blessings then. Right. Yeah. I'll take cussing over mm-hmm. hot dog yeah. or electric yeah. toothbrush oh, girl any day of the week. What high school is this? <laughs> It's called Wapahani, and we were so small. There was a cornfield surrounding us and a cow farm across the street from us, which came in handy because it was directly in view of the art room. So when she's like, we're going to paint, you know, outside nature today, paint whatever inspires you. And, you know, you look out the window and you're like, oh, it's mating season for the cows. (laughs) Let me break out my paintbrush she said anything it's not the birds and the bees out there it's the bulls and the cows it's the cows and the cows (laughs) quit it you're hurting her the two naughty bulls (laughs) okay and that's how i got kicked out of art class (laughs) okay so tell us about her Born Alexandrina Victoria on May 24, 1819 in Kensington Palace, she was crowned queen when she was 18 in 1837 after a whole childhood of manipulation by her mother and a man named Sir John Conroy, who had used her mother as a cog in his wheel of games in an attempt to try to force Victoria into signing over her power to him when she was 16. In 1839, due to royal protocol, Victoria proposed to her future husband and first cousin, Prince Albert. The two would go on to marry and have nine children together. Albert used not only the children as a weapon to spread his influence throughout Europe. Queen Victoria is known as the grandmother of Europe because her children went on to lead most of European countries. Those are some randy descendants. Yes, And it all ployed by Prince Albert. Albert used not only the children as a weapon to spread his influence among Europe, but Victoria's almost constant state of pregnancy as well. By keeping her pregnant and occupied, he would have more free reign to act as king. They even had side-by-side desks, and she was infamous for always saying, Let me ask Albert, whenever faced with any decision. Her infatuation with her husband kept her in a rose-colored haze so much that she even grew to despise being a mother and really didn't care for her children. 
as it took away from her time with her beloved. So much so that when one of her daughters later wrote to her about her first pregnancy, Victoria replied that it was almost animalistic and compared her daughter breastfeeding to that of a cow. Even later, naming one of her cows Alice after that daughter. Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh no. Like, you know, I've seen parents to where they're like, oh honey, you don't need that other ho-ho or, you know, that snack. But to name a cow after your pregnant. That's mean. (laughs) This bitch is cold. I Very. During their marriage, she didn't have a whole lot to do with the day-to-day runnings of the country. It wasn't until Albert met an early death in 1861 at the age of 42, and after an overly extended mourning period in Germany, like years and years she was gone mourning, the now-widowed queen was gearing up to take charge and expand her country. The Victorian age is known for its lavishness, as well as the industrial, technological, economical, and social changes. All of that came at a deadly cost, though. During her reign, the Great Hunger in Ireland occurred, which lasted from 1845 to 51. It was the worst famine in Europe during the 1800s and resulted in over one million Irish deaths and a further several million being forced to immigrate. This is where my family came from. The British barely responded to the ordeal and aside from a little bit of financial aid to fund soup kitchens and road labor, they did not involve themselves in the responsibility and left it all to the landowners, who, as you can imagine, took great advantage of the situation. They basically, each landowner was like their own king, pretty much. They did what they wanted to their people. Queen Victoria did donate a measly 2,000 pounds after her initial donation of only 1,000 pounds was rejected for being too small to be from the queen. Her act of meager philanthropy ended up hindering the relief efforts more than it helped. Due to another royal protocol, no one could donate more than the queen. And when the Sultan of Turkey wanted to send 10,000 pounds, it had to be rejected. He was later only allowed to donate 1,000 pounds in the end. Victoria's lack of response and just plain lack of empathy towards the people of Ireland garnered her the nickname the Famine Queen. During her reign, the country grew by 10 million square miles and 400 million people. It is estimated that by her death, one-fifth of the world's land masses and one in four people were under her rule of subjugation and colonization. At the time of her death in 1901, she had the titles Her Royal Highness Queen Victoria I, Queen of the United Kingdom, Head of the Commonwealth, Queen of Canada, Australia, the Famine, and New Zealand, Grandmother of Europe, and even though she never stepped foot into the country, Empress of India. She had the second longest reign of any monarch in history at 63 years, even more impressive that it was at a time when the average life expectancy of tradesmen and laborers was just 22 to 25 years old. I found that mind-boggling just 
Can you imagine 25 being a life expectancy of a, a grown person? We'd all be dead. <laughs> right, right. We'd Alex be old. Alex and me are like, <laughs> we know when we talk about older cases and our, either our criminals or victims are referred to as old and they're just barely like 35 or 40. And we're like, we'd be dead. Back in those days, we <laughs> we'd be getting that senior <laughs> discount though. I'm... I'd be out. I'd be out tapping out. That'd be nice. Go get Grandpa Josh. He's almost thirty three. Like, could you imagine? But you know, they had children younger then. So by the time you were fifteen, you probably had at least one child. I'm thirty two, and I'm like, just I'll stick with the my chihuahua. I think both of our grandmas. Uh, both of my grandmas had kids when they were like 16 or 17. Yes. Yeah. My great grandma started as a teenager and she ended up having 16 Ooh. children. Oh my God. And the last one was 16 pounds. I'm like, what? Lord, at least he came last. That's <laughs> what made her change yeah. her mind. She's like, this is it. I no more. Yeah. Don't <laughs> yeah. touch me again. She, going she, in. she was like, this is the last one. I'm going to make it count. Right. I just, 16 pounds, my <gasps> God. That piece of leather would have had to have been thick that she Yikes. was biting on. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. <laughs> we often think of the grandeur of the Victorian age, but it was also a time when the population of London grew so much that it was common for the homeless to either pay a penny to sit on a bench all night or two pennies to lean over a rope to sleep. Disease ran rampant and living conditions were so bad that there was a 60% mortality rate. And this is the fun fact I mentioned earlier. Even tampons were dipped in opium and belladonna to help ease the pain. Could you imagine? Sign me up. No, I don't know. I bet it works better than my doll, yeah. you know? At least they had access to necessary medicines and, you know, whatever they needed. Yeah. These days, I feel it would be like price 10 times. The actual cost, the pink tax. It made me think, like, maybe it made women, like, more, you know, a little bit excited yes. when Aunt Flo came to right. visit. Like, Something ooh, to look forward to. I started. <laughs> Time to watch the sky melt, you know? <laughs> I saw a cough medicine label, like a vintage one from, I don't know, like the early 1900s. And the first three ingredients were cocaine, marijuana, and, like, some other crazy drug. And I was like, okay. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, they were just all flying high back then they say you know things used to be simpler i'm like yeah because you were all out of your mind <laughs> yeah. on drugs you might like, not feel better but you definitely don't feel worse <laughs> right? you just don't feel <laughs> there's just a constant state of numb yeah euphoric numb can i ask a question yeah was queen victoria just to get like timelines correct this is the great irish famine the sort of famous one she was yes involved yes. in so i was in dublin a few months ago and i visited a prison Kilmainham gaul and gaul means prison in irish and during the famine it was so overpopulated and there was this victorian prison reform that happened at the same time which is like an interesting whole other story where they were trying to like create these prisons that would actually reform religiously prisoners but anyways during the famine these prisons were so overrun 
because they had criminalized begging and being homeless, essentially. Jesus. And they were imprisoning children. I think the youngest inmate at this prison was like three years oh, old. Oh, no. And unaccompanied as well. Just like a little prisoner baby walking around by Oh, itself. my God. Why can't we have that today? Because I'd send my, my toddler for a little free time. <laughs> That's just preschool these days. <laughs> I definitely got the impression that like, man, the Irish got it really bad from the English as well. There should have been an Irish Indian collaboration. And I think there was a story about like I, an Irish prince or king, or, I don't know, an important Irish person trying to get to India, but getting lost and then getting drunk because of Irish. <laughs> They're Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and and then getting assassinated. I did this morbid history tour of Dublin. I think that's like the best type of tour to do when you travel. I would straight up history. do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> and so it was full of stories like that. And I just thought, yeah, that was Victoria. <laughs> I've covered the famine and it was in my St. Patrick's Day episode earlier this year, and I covered one of the landlords that actually, like, all of his rotten crimes and the stuff that they did during it, and just in- incredible. Like, I I wasn't even taught that. You know, we're taught, this is the great hunger, this is what happened, and they came to America, and then it switched over to the history of Irish in America. You know, we didn't learn any, any more about the history of Ireland. So I was like, oh, my God. I'm, you know, my family came from that. So I, you know, I'm a little grateful that, you know, they were able to manage to make it over here to the Appalachian Mountains and give me this accent. But (laughs) a fun fact I did learn, though, while I told you I'm all about them. If you've ever noticed, the Jamaican accent and the Irish accent are very similar if you've ever heard them close together. And it's because Jamaica was actually colonized by Irish and not in a way that the British did. They colonized it, but in a, a lot friendlier of a way, you know, where they didn't just bust in and take over. They integrated themselves into the country. And I just, I found that so neat. I was like, oh my God, they are very similar. And on a talk show, I heard an Irish lady, they gave her like a Jamaican, few Jamaican phrases to say. And it sounded just like, and I was like, <laughs> oh, that is beautiful, you know, from across the world, wow. but similar. Yeah. I love that. I could totally picture that. It's so interesting. I don't know. The Jamaican accent is probably my favorite accent. Like I could just just read a recipe book to me and I'll love it. Like anything. I just Rihanna, I could hear an interview with her all day. I know she's not yeah. Jamaican, but it's very similar. I just give me an accent. I don't care what it is besides mine. I just have the hillbilly is what we call it. I like your accent. <laughs> I had this neighbor. She was late 70s, early 80s. And she called us over when we moved in. You know, they called us over for a little get together. Just a hello, welcome to the neighborhood. And I started talking to her and telling her all about where we came from, blah, blah, blah. And after about a good solid 10 minutes of me talking nonstop, because I do that when I feel anxious, she's like, oh, dear. You're going to have to slow down. I'm from the South. <laughs> like, oh, no. Oh, no. Honey, you got to slow, slow it down. Because <laughs> she didn't get a single thing of what I said. I like, oh. You were doing the, like, she thought you were just speaking Hindi. She probably <laughs> thought I was <laughs> literally talking Hindi. 
I got that a lot growing up. Honey, slow down. You're talking too fast. You take things slow here. Okay. As we know from history, it can be pretty one-sided. Before this research, I had known Victoria as the second longest reigning monarch who had a close relationship with her male servants and expanded her kingdom. I was taken aback when Pia kindly educated me on the rotten things Victoria did to increase her wealth, especially the thievery of the Koh-i-Noor diamond and trillions of dollars that the country is still trying to recover from. Some skeptics say that she was not aware of most of the crimes against humanity that were committed. To me, that gives me the same vibes as a badly ran business blaming its employees for quitting. Just another example of corporate offices blaming a scapegoat. And this is where I will hand it over to you, Pia, so you can educate us on one of the history's largest robberies and how old Miss Colonial Devil Queen herself was involved. So thank you, Josh, for telling us a little bit about Queen Victoria, where she came from, and her general persona. Today, I thought, let's explore the effects that Victoria and her reign had over India. And the best way to do that is by taking up one specific case that is still in the psyche of Desi people, or that's brown people all over the world, because we feel so personally attached to the Kohinoor as if it were ours, as if it belonged to us and was taken from our families by Victoria. And if you ask any Desi person, no matter where they live, what their nationality currently is, they would want the Kohinoor returned. I don't know where to, but they just want it out of the hands of the British. Bring it back now. Yeah, or like at least don't make us pay to go see it in a museum. Like all Indians should get free entrance at minimum. Yes, <laughs> to the British and an apology, <laughs> like an apology gift basket comes with the entrance, free entrance. That's what We're sorry. <laughs> Here's one. Then you'll have a you'll have a Karen though. Where, where's my gift basket? <laughs> I've been oppressed too. Right. <laughs> Calm down. Yeah. So. Yes, Victoria and her reign, and not just her reign, but even after her, caused at least $40, $45 trillion worth of debt to India because they stole everything, you know, took the spices, took the tea, took the coffee, took the gold and the jewels, taxed people people. until they couldn't feed themselves or their families, killed a whole bunch of people, caused famines, like manufactured famines, so that the people were weakened and couldn't protest and overthrow them. All of that, just it, there's so much pain and suffering in those 200 years in India's history, which we can directly attribute to the British royal family or the crown, so to speak. And Victoria certainly was a big part of that. And like you said, she may not have always been aware of what's going on in her name because she wasn't just sole decision maker in all of these actions. There was a whole group of ministers and generals and whatever the whole crown was made up of who facilitated all of that, but she was okay with it. She never said, stop it. Stop doing this in my name. Yes. she. It did bring her great pleasure to use the name Empress of India. As soon as she became the Empress, she started signing her name that way. And she liked that, but... Now, knowing what I know about it, I'm like, ooh, girl, like, 
What was wrong with you? I don't know. Was she like a simple, simple-minded person? She seemed to be very intelligent. She loved to educate herself up until she died. She was constantly educating, but she was born into so much privilege that just her mind didn't even grasp like it, it was just numbers to her. I think she was so far removed from the problems she was helping to create that it wasn't real enough. Like she wasn't even aware like, oh, people can suffer. Like, what's yeah. that? Josh, you had mentioned at the beginning that she was manipulated as a child by her mother and her mother's friend. Sir John Conroy, he was just a friend of the family, but he was trying to take over. Right. And that made me think, in general, when royal people are raised, they are removed from society. And that must be some, you know, whether on purpose or not, I think it does create a certain detachment naturally and like an inability to empathize or like understand. Oh, yes. You sort of see common people as like a different species from yourself. So I'm sure that doesn't help. And then you see these little brown people and you're like, oh, pff, yeah, we could just ship them out. But, uh, right. I don't. I'm not in direct view of what's happening, so it you know it, yeah. there, it's a lot. Look the other way type of situation, yeah. and I uh, watched the uh, Harry and Meghan thing on Netflix. Ooh, I I'm watch up to that. like episode three, and he mentioned that how you're raised in this world, you're aware of the outside real world, but you're not phased by it because it honestly doesn't have a lot to do with you, and you're just in this bubble unaware. And he said, you know, until he got older. Thankfully, his mother was Princess Diana, so he had some of that at a young age, but sadly, it was ended yes, again, too young. Because, because someone, someone made it happen. Yes, I okay. agree. So today, let's talk about the tragic saga of King Dilip Singh and the Kohinoor and how anyone that has ever been in possession of the Kohinoor was cast under a spell of enchantment with seemingly supernatural obsession to hold it near and dear, despite an endless trail of misery that follows this pretty piece of pure carbon. Ooh, so it's cursed. So today I'm going to tell you a little bit about the tragedy that befell Prince Dulip Singh and the entwined journey of the Kohinoor diamond with the prince. Kohinoor in Persian means mountain of light, but this diamond, often called cursed, has witnessed a lot of death and destruction in its lifetime. Legend has it that the Kohinoor is cursed and that any man who wears it upon his crown will be showered with immense unlimited wealth, but also suffer the greatest miseries in life. For thousands of years, India was the object of desire for so many invaders. Rich in spices, minerals, and precious stones of the glittery kind, it has always been like a moth to the flame when it came to invaders and India. The provenance of the Kohinoor are folk tales and legends at best. We don't really know where it came from, but if we had to guess, going by historical records of where usually diamonds came from, it is believed to have been mined in Andhra Pradesh, India, by the Kakatiya dynasty in the 12th century. The jewel was then placed into the eye of a statue of goddess Bhadrakali in a Hindu temple in Warangal, India. 
And Bhadrakali is a form of Kalima, who we talk about often in our episodes. And she has the mm-hmm. third eye on her forehead. And I suspect that's where the Kohinoor sat. Ain't that a Ooh. sight? Man, I want to go see it. Kalima. Kalima Shakti Dev. Bali Chadhao Tere Aage. This huge, gorgeous goddess statue and then this huge diamond as her third eye. Like, that would be intimidating. That is lit. I want to be there. Put me back in the 12th century. I know. If we ever get a time Mm -hmm. machine, I know where we're going. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, Central Asian feudal warriors came knocking on India's door to loot us. And Alauddin Khilji was one such invader who looted the temple in Warangal and conquered the king of that time, he grabbed the Kohinoor off of the statue and took it with him. And of course, it passed through many hands and finally landed in the hand of Babur, the Turco-Mongol descendant of Chinggis Khan, after he defeated the Sultan of Delhi in 1526. Mm-hmm. Small world. Pia, who is Chinggis okay. Khan? <laughs> Many might know him as Genghis Khan or Genghis Khan, but his real name is Chinggis Khan. It's not K-H-A-N. The Han is pronounced as, you know, that sound. Mm -hmm. So Chinggis Khan. Oh, I love it. I'm going to start calling him that from now on. People will be like, what do you mean? I'm like, (laughs) fun fun fact. fact. (laughs) There you go. In 1635. Babur's great-grandson, Shah Jahan, who built the Taj Mahal in memory of his late wife, Mumtaz Mahal, also commissioned a magnificent throne, like that of King Solomon, to be made for him. It was called the Takht-e-Tawas, or the Peacock Throne, and it cost four times as much as the Taj Mahal, y'all. Oh my god. For just one throne? Ooh. I bet it was uncomfortable, too. That's a hot seat. (laughs) Right. Made I'd be afraid of to sit solid in it. gold with 12 pillars and encrusted with countless pearls, diamonds, rubies, emeralds. Now, the Kohinoor stayed on top of the peacock throne for more than a century as the descendants of Shah Jahan lost power with each generation. Was it because of the Kohinoor, you think? Mm, the curse. I'd like to I'd think put so. money on it. <laughs> or spending all that money on the throne. Probably the Mughal dynasty weaked. Is it dynasty or dynasty? I've heard it both. I say dynasty, but again, hillbilly. The Mughal dynasty <laughs> weakened and lost its brilliance. Shah Jahan's grandson was invaded by the Persian king, Nadir Shah of Iran, who came over and carted off the peacock throne to Iran. He turned the Kohinoor into the centerpiece of a bracelet worn by his descendants over the years. Good Lord. That's a got to be a, a weighty... <laughs> Look at it. Oh, that's like where the chunky jewelry style really began. <laughs> the costume jewelry. Yeah. Look. <laughs> they call me extra. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know much about him to know which one applies, but Nadir Shah was murdered in 1747. And his grandson gifted this Kohinoor bracelet to an Afghani ruler named Ahmad Shah Durrani in return for military support. So it was. 
significant enough or well-known enough to be used as a pawn in these war games, really. Wow. Now, a Durrani descendant, Shuja Sa Durrani, eventually fled Afghanistan and sought shelter with the legendary Sikh king of India called Maharaja Ranjit Singh, whose kingdom spanned all of Lahore, which is now in Pakistan. Now, Ranjit Singh was gracious and generous with his hospitality, but knew very well about the origins of the Kohinoor and wanted to get his hands on the gem. Ranjit Singh, also known as Shere Punjab or the Lion of Punjab, was firm on his request to Durrani that he must have the Kohinoor in return for his protection. So once again, Kohinoor is a pawn in these war games. Like, you want my protection, you better give me that bling bling, you know? That's <laughs> why. <laughs> I need a new grill and that's the perfect like, fit put it for on it. Now you save. Yeah. Okay. So, just in case you thought this was an easy trade, know that Ranjit spent a large part of his life at war with various Afghani rulers since the age of 10 when he first fought his battles with them alongside his father. So, he spent his entire life fighting Afghanis, but this one time he was okay to make friends with them and foster this peace treaty just so he could get his hands on the Kohinoor. Was the Kohinoor wow. the catalyst for this reluctant alliance? Despite what historians may think, I like to think <laughs> that it was just the Kohinoor. I mean, it seems like something big enough to be able to do that, especially, you know, at that time, magic and everything was a lot more real to people than it is today. So, you know, those curses and even just the magic behind it, you know, I can see how everybody would want that diamond just you know now i'm protected till they learn it's, it's a little bit like the rings from lord of the rings isn't it everyone wants it yes mm-hmm. that's another obsession <laughs> so yeah this transaction wasn't all smiles it was a very passive aggressive game of waiting why because durani although he had initially agreed to hand it over since he was literally rescued by maharaja ranjit singh who had sent 12,000 troops to escort him to Lahore safely just to do this transaction, didn't really want to hand it over after all. So Ranjit Singh then offered to buy it from him. And he's like, okay, you don't have to give it to me for free. I'll pay you a handsome sum, a princely sum. Again, agreed, but didn't hand over the jewel for weeks and months. Ranjit Singh waited patiently. And while Durrani was housed in a fully serviced mansion in Lahore, Ranjit Singh had had enough. So he emptied the water tanks and stopped supplying food to the mansion till Durrani agreed to hand it over the cursed diamond on June the 1st, 1813. Some tough repossession tactics there. I mean, he was being so sketchy holding on to it too. (laughs) Like, what did he think was going to (laughs) happen? Always get your stuff up front before you I mean, Ranjit Singh is literally being a sweetheart. He's like using kid gloves with this guy because he's a legendary warrior. He has conquered so many other like rulers and expanded his territory. He's known as a fierce guy. The fact that he's being so nice to this Afghani ruler is a testament to his patience and his restraint and also his uh, sense of justice and fairness. He's not killing him. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah, he could have just went in there and taken his, his it. mansion. His servants are in that mansion, but he's being a gentleman, being, you know, noble. I like that. You don't hear about that a lot in history. That's true. A king of his people, down to earth, fair and just, and he made his entire state secular, never once discriminating against anyone for having different beliefs. He had people from every religion, caste and creed in his kingdom, in his military, is as part of his court. Not only just Indians, but also foreign members. So people from France, from Portugal, even America. So he was really kind of a cool guy. An inclusive king. Yeah, I was totally I, fangirling. My mind is, over Ranjit what? I read all this. I'm like, damn, we could use him right now. <laughs> we need a Ranjit Singh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Can we bring him back? Little clone? After he received the Kohinoor diamond on June 1st, 1813, Ranjit Singh felt complete and he went on to rule his kingdom for another 40 years before this fierce Maharaja ultimately fell ill and died of a stroke in 1839. Now, remember the curse? No man can wear it on his head as a crown. Well, Ranjit Singh wore it as an armband or sometimes part of a necklace. So even though he, I don't know if these people really believed in the curse, but as you can see, the Afghanis and the Persians all wore it as bracelets or armbands, never really putting it on a crown. So they must have believed in it. Hmm. They weren't taking the risk. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, mm -hmm, I've got a lot to lose <laughs> and I'm just, let's make a necklace. <laughs> It was around this time that the East India Company was at its peak and had besieged the Indian subcontinent. All of these royal Indian conspiracies, murders, and acts of backstabbing were most likely fueled by interested parties like the East India Companies, just waiting in the shadows to jump out and claim power when the time was right. Because that's how they operated, through deceit and mm, corruption. Yes. Corruption. Planting the seeds of discourse inside and waiting. They were not noble I can just see in them. any yes. sense of yes. Oh no, anything I know Trash. about the East India Trading Company, they were like the worst business ever, corporation, whatever you want to call it, in history. Like horrible, like for spices, like and tobacco. <laughs> and today, and I live in a country where most of... <laughs> the people don't use spices so i'm like all of it was for nothing they use salt and garlic powder they don't know what that is at least they use pepper which is indian so yeah i use it all and when they, my family calls my cooking fancy cooking i'm like i added parsley like it's not it's not fancy olive oil i use uh i think the most spice I use is I use a lot of turmeric. Like I uh, put it in just about, it's so good for you. I try to put it in everything I can. And the color is so fun where I'm like, oh, I'm going to put that in my oatmeal and have yellow oatmeal. <laughs> mm. This East India Company, this was formed in the 1600s by wealthy merchants, including the current mayor of London at that time. The East India Company, yeah, they arrived in India in 1608 on the banks of Gujarat, which is a state in northwestern India. They quickly made enormous profits by trading 
spices, silk, jewels, and cotton that they bought there. They flourished because they had the blessings of the British monarchy and an exclusive license to trade in the East Indies. So they were the only company that could travel to India and the other countries in that region and trade there. So they monopolized it quickly. Totally. And since they were made up of such influential people, they could just make up whatever rules they wanted. Who's going to fight them? Right. And if they just decided to change them afterwards, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> Where are your livelihood? You keep people busy trying to earn that penny to sleep on a bench on the street. On a bench, yeah. In London. Shoot, that's that's here today. I mean, it, uh, more than a penny minimum wage, but I mean, you know, keep them busy earning the bare minimum so they don't notice what we're doing over here. And rebel. <laughs> yes, yes. No time to pick up the pitchforks when you have to earn a penny to sleep at night. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, they oh. did, you know, all of this, and they realized that they could use guns, bribery, deception, and paranoia to control the fertile lands of the subcontinent by pitting one ruler against the other and causing infighting amongst the royals because India was not one united country. It was a collection of kingdoms. Not always friendly, sometimes vassal, sometimes just kind of tolerating each other because they had to live next to each other, but they weren't completely united as one country or one face or one people, no. And that's why even today, when you travel in India from state to state, the culture is so different. There's a different language, a different cuisine, a different traditional outfit, different customs. It's just, it feels like you're traveling in a foreign country every time you cross a state line. Hmm. I want to go there so badly. <laughs> <laughs> Field trip. What are you Field guys doing trip. next week? It's a good time of year to go for us Northern Hemisphere bound people let's i am game i'm freezing so a mere trading company became an imperial ruler when the british monarchy fully took control of the company in 1857 so now with the backing of queen victoria it had all the power and resources to wage war all over india and now they are invaders because now they're backed fully by the British monarchy. So, not just in Lahore, but all over India, royals and their heirs were suddenly getting sick, becoming addicted to harmful substances, and dying very young. I don't know, I'm gonna leave it up to you why that was happening. <laughs> Can you imagine why? Mm, well, they say uh, poison is a woman's way of murder, and I mean, she was Queen Victoria. I mean, there's no way that's a coincidence. Maybe one or two, but several. Nightshade muffins for everyone. <laughs> right. You get a tampon. You get a tampon. They're just extra dosed. <laughs> so Ranjit Singh's empire had become a horrible battleground of power between his children and his siblings. The Kohinoor kept being passed around from whomever was being murdered to their next heir in a bloody game of hot potato. After six different rulers of Punjab were coronated and then killed within four years. Good gravy. They were making quite the alu masala there, hey? 
<laughs> That's a like a Indian curry. Indian potato curry dish. I had to. I laughed out of politeness, and then I was like, I don't know what to that get is. A little like food thing in there. <laughs> so yes, this alu curry that was going on in Ranjit Singh's kingdom. A very bloody curry was cooking for four years. And the Kohinoor finally, along with the title of Sovereign of Punjab, was bestowed upon Ranjit Singh's youngest son. Guess how old this little guy was? Five years old. Oh, oh my perfect God. age for a king. And he has the <laughs> diamond now. I can't even get a text back and a five-year-old has that big diamond. I can't even... <laughs> The poor child was declared as the heir inherent, but owing to his age, he couldn't be ruler just yet. Someone had to administer on his behalf till he came of age, and that was his mother, Rani Jind Kaur, Dilip's mother. This was the rule put in place by the colonial British invaders. They used these uh, bullshit laws to annex princely states with ease because preying on children and grieving queens was much easier than having to fight oh, yeah. with kings. And usually, the company would take over control, collect taxes and revenue from the state, and simply pay the widows or their children a fixed stipend annually. And this was nowhere near what the lifestyle that they were used to. It would reduce them from royals to barely being above common folk. And they had no longer any say in much of their state's affairs. So basically, they were able to still survive in a meager form, but that alimony check just was not cutting it. <laughs> in Duleep Singh's case, the East India Company was especially savage with their ploy for Punjab. Rani Jind Kaur had fought for her son's rights and to establish herself as her son's regent authority so that she could still make decisions regarding him and their kingdom. But in 1845... The British arrived at the door of the Sikh kingdom and declared war. This was the first Anglo-Sikh war. And betrayed by British sympathizers in her court, Queen Jind Kaur had to surrender. And she signed the Treaty of Lahore on Dilip Singh's behalf. Also taken at this time from the family of Ranjit Singh was the infamous Kohinoor diamond. This was positioned as the young prince presenting the invaluable jewel to Queen Victoria as a gift. Is that really a gift? I mean, I don't have that also, good Also, it's like a five-year-old, right? Is he still five years old when this is happening? Sorry. Yes, he is. I, I think he's like so five So it's just like, come here, honey. What do you have in your hand? Little, like, five-year-old is like, here, look. It's literally taking candy from a baby. This old white queen is like, here, give me that. You don't need it. And like, what? Rude. They say, you know, the British, they're supposed to be um, very proper. But that is like, these are the rudest things I've ever heard. Like, how dare you? Gift, it was absolutely not. As part of the Treaty of Lahore signed at the end of this Anglo-Sikh war, one of the provisions actually demanded the jewel be handed over. It read, and I quote, The gem called the Kohinoor, which was taken from Shah Suja ul Mulk by Maharaja Ranjit Singh, shall be surrendered by the Maharaja of Lahore to the Queen of England. I don't think you write 
a requirement of gifting if it was actually a gift into a treaty. <laughs> that's like a suggested when you go to like something that's free and they're like, but you're required to tip <laughs> us. I'm like, no, you said it was free. I'm not paying the bowl or, you know, first thing that came to mind. <laughs> exactly. That was not a gift. You don't gift something with a sword pressed against your neck. <laughs> Right. Well, especially a five-year-old, you know, he didn't, you know, I'm sure was a little bit aware of what the value of it was, but there's no way he could have understood what he was actually doing at that time. Yeah, my kid gets excited about what cookies she finds in a store. That's her life. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think she'd be able to decide anything about handing over a precious jewel to an no invader. Way. Yeah. At that age, I would have just been like, no, you're not getting my shiny rock. <laughs> yeah, this is my true. shiny rock. It's got to be pretty exciting. <laughs> or they could have just handed me something a little shinier or, you know, a different color. And I'm like, okay, I love it. Thank you. After they annexed Punjab from the boy Dilip, they most cruelly separated him from his mother, Rani Jind Kaur, because they feared that she would groom him to be the fierce king that his father was. And they were separated and kept away from each other for 13 years. It seems like a veiled threat or maybe an open threat. If she went against their orders, her son would suffer or worse yet, be murdered because she wasn't around to protect him. Just like the Kohinoor, the jewel of Rani Jindkor's heart, her son was stolen from her. Aww. They were definitely keeping him hostage. It's like, what do they call it? Like collateral, but a human. The queen of Punjab was exiled into a fort in Banaras. She escaped from there dressed as a handmaiden in the dark of night. And she traveled 800 kilometers through the forest to seek asylum in the kingdom of Nepal, where she lived for 11 years. Meanwhile, the poor Prince Dilip was now completely at the mercy of the East India Company and he had no power at all. He was forcefully converted to Christianity by them as a child and then at the age of 15 was sent off to London to further separate him from his kingdom. I find that so devious. Like just when he's kind of getting his wits about them, they're like, off with you now. Get out of here. You're getting too familiar. Time to switch it up a little bit. Let's confuse yeah. you even more without his mother or anything. Yeah. Just, I mean, he's still fairly young at that time. Like, I get public anxiety in my 30s, let alone I can't imagine being that young and, you know, exposed to that. I'd be a nervous wreck. Records state that the Queen Victoria was very fond of the handsome young prince. And so was her consort, Prince whatever his name was. I don't even... No, who, who cares? cares? Who cares? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Prince White Devil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Queen Victoria allegedly wrote this about Dilip. Those eyes and those teeth are too beautiful. Oh, Amazing. Just from my research of her, she was a very um, boy crazy type of woman. Like, I mean, she had affairs with at least one of her male caretakers and anytime she would ever speak of a man she would always talk about how good he looked this is a boy this is a child right 
Yeah, that that part's creepy. Otherwise, I was like kind of on board with it. I was like, that might be the only thing I like about her so far. But then the child part comes into play. And I'm like, oh, no. Especially as, at her advanced age. Like, that's only a thing a grandma could say to her grandson. Like, oh, you're such a cute boy. Look at those eyes. You know, <laughs> give me those cheeks. She was completely infatuated with him. And she encouraged Ooh. him to play along and party along with her children. Whom she didn't like. (laughs) She sketched him often and she even had him dress up one of her younger children in Indian clothes. Oh, yay, I'm indulging in the culture. I can't be evil. Like, you know, I didn't just kill 2.5 million of your people, (laughs) you know. So she's sketching an underage child. Oh, Queen Victoria. See, it's one of those, if it was a king doing this to a young girl, I would be like, extremely outraged and i still am but i'm like why why is this not taught <laughs> yeah. to us she was a bit of a, a pervert <laughs> so he was also fondly called the black prince and paraded around royal parties like an exotic possession yeah it sounds like she's sort fondly. of playing with him like a doll in certain like points mm-hmm. like oh look at my new accessory that i something to take up my time like oh i hate that parading around he absorbed their culture and was spoiled in the worst ways just like the east india company had done back in india right get all the young princes addicted to every single vice possible so they don't mind their kingdom anymore that's kind of what was happening to him in london and after a year of course touring around europe like they kept pushing him oh why don't you go visit Paris. He's like, I'm done. I want to go home. I want to go back to India. It's cold here. (laughs) The food sucks. (laughs) They denied his requests. He was awarded a pension of 25,000 pounds annually, as long as he remained loyal to the British and was leased a castle in Perthshire, where he was to live from now on as a guest of the Queen. Guest or prisoner? Much like him. Yeah, much like I was about to say, you hostage. mean hostage. Yeah. <laughs> Much like him, the Kohinoor lay caged in an ugly crown that the queen wore to momentous ceremony. Really I was going to so say ugly. that earlier. Like, all of these kings and and warriors who, like, this gem, this diamond jewel has passed hands, none of them put it on a crown because that was, like, the one thing you're not supposed to do. And what did the British do immediately? Stick it on a crown. And this white lady comes and she's like, you know what? I'm putting it on here <laughs> with some right. others. Like, I mean, it's joined with huge, like it's, and this is coming from a, a gaudy gay man, but it is a very gaudy crown. It is horrible. <laughs> Even I'm like too much. Tone it yeah. down. While he was a teenager, the prince was offered the chance to see the Kohinoor again. Okay. I don't know who came up with this idea. I just find it even more cruel. Like, Taunting. you want to see that diamond that we snatched from you when you were five? Uh. You want to see it again? Oh, God. Did they even let him touch it or just hold it in front of his face? Like, look, he used to own this. Remember when you were king? His caretaker reported that the young prince held the stone with such emotion, turning it over and over between his fingers and staring at it as if it was the very key to his detention and the solution to all his problems. 
You can see the emotional attachment that he had with it because it meant so much to his father. Well, and it was the only thing he had from his country and, you know, his mother and his ancestors. Oh, that's heartbreaking. So as the years went by, this poor guy, he was forced to live in London. He married thrice and had plenty of children, some of whom had Queen Victoria as their godmother. All of this as a show of friendship or kinship by the queen, when in reality, I feel like it was simply a tactic for optics to the world and a cunning bid to keep enemies close under watchful eyes. They groomed the poor young prince to lose his identity, to adopt a foreign culture, and brainwashed him enough that he no longer related to his lost kingdom. Because if he would have been killed, that would cause an uprising back in Lahore. Mm -hmm. But they kept him alive. They kept him alive and just erased his identity, which was so devious. Ugh, I, I'm at a loss of words. I'm <laughs> just baffled <laughs> is the word that comes to it's mind. It's the gall of it all, too, hey? Again, I didn't research anything you're telling me, so I'm just like, this is so much worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> the prince never forgot his mother, and he tried to contact her many times over the years. Each time, his letters to her were blocked by the company, and all of his requests to meet her were denied. But finally, in 1861, the colonial usurpers reckoned that the Rani, now middle-aged and half-blind, was no longer a threat to them. Especially since her son was now a London local more interested in partying and living it up than fight for a kingdom. The mother and son met in Calcutta in 1861 and swiftly moved to a manor in Yorkshire. Or Yorkshire? I don't know how you say that. I've heard both. Where she lived for two more years with the league. And for those two years that Rani Chindkor spent with her son, she told him many tales of their former glory and also about her mistreatment by the British. Now this caused the prince to undergo a cathartic change, and he began to distance himself from the British royals, growing bitter by the day. In 1863, which is just two years after they met, Rani Jindkor died. The royals rubbed salt in Prince Dalip's wound by denying him the passage to India to cremate his mother according to her wishes. Even in death, they disrespected her. How horrible. And especially, you know, you'd mentioned a minute ago, they didn't view him as a threat anymore. So what's the harm in letting him do that for his mother? They don't want to take the chance that he goes back and suddenly connects to his roots and starts rebelling against the British. Dalip pondered over his life circumstances often and was filled with remorse and regret over what he once was and what he could have been. He was torn over his conversion to Christianity and he now saw that more of a political move than a spiritual one. And he had been nothing more than a pawn in this game of the British. The Leap had only been to India twice after 1854 under very controlled visits that lasted only a few days. He longed for his country. And in 1886, 
He had made up his mind to reconcile with his old kingdom and go back to India. He set out via Europe despite the denial and protest of the British royals. He was unfortunately stopped short in his tracks and arrested in Yemen. They destroyed his plans to go to India. However, they could not intervene in his bid to reconvert back to Sikhism. Now you see, Dilip had been secretly in touch with his cousin Sardar Thakkar Singh Sandhawalia back in India. And he had traveled to Yemen to help Dilip make that trip to India. Now while Dilip was arrested, Thakkar Singh along with a Sikh priest performed the rites that converted the erstwhile Maharaja of Punjab back to being a proud Sikh. Ooh, that's a little win at least. Right. Oh. Yeah. One, one victory. Small victory. At least <laughs> yeah. he feels like himself again. He feels like he's in control of his identity. Now, Dulip spent his last year sorrowful after trying and failing a few more times to claim his kingdom in Lahore. His father, Ranjit Singh, had many French warriors and diplomats in his army. And so, Dulip found many friends and well-wishers in Paris who supported his claim and became passionate about his quest. In 1890, he reconciled with his former ward, Queen Victoria, and unsurprisingly, two years later, he died at the age of 55, almost penniless in a rundown hotel in Paris. The name of which I couldn't find despite searching a lot. Do we know how he died? Um, no, we do not. I was just curious if if you think it was like shady or poisoning or if it was like a natural. They just said he drank a lot and he had liver problems, which could be anything. (laughs) It could be anything. I have an ex like that. (laughs) (laughs) The Kohinoor remained in the royal treasury of the British, part of the crown jewels worn by them on important occasions. Queen Victoria, Queen Alexandria, Queen Mary, and even Queen Elizabeth wore the Kohinoor as part of their crown. Queen Elizabeth II, though, you know, the current one, she never once wore the crown with the Kohinoor on it. Not even once. I wonder why. Hmm. Does she believe in the curse? As for her grandmother, Victoria's will, for a hundred years, the Kohinoor has only graced the heads of women. So Victoria willed it that way that no man should ever wear that crown. So it would only be the queen or if it's a king, then the king's wife who can wear the Kohinoor crown. Wow. Well, no man shall. They didn't say women. It's like Lord of the Rings. I am no man. (laughs) (laughs) It's the loophole. So she definitely believed in the curse for sure. Or guilt, you know, like, oh, I don't want to wear it. There's a lot of blood maybe she's like it's not really my my style (laughs) a modest queen right so queens and consorts to kings who amassed unimaginable wealth by cheating plundering deceiving and killing millions of people have worn this crown people were left helpless and without resources to pull themselves back up to their former glory as a result of their conquests Now, the Kohinoor is but a symbol of wealth and power and a pawn in the deadly ego games of man. After the death of Queen Elizabeth II, 
in the last couple of months, I guess. The people of UK mourned the death of their queen, but many Indians, Pakistanis, and other former colonies rejoiced. I bet. Celebrate. Not because she was necessarily a horrible human being, but because she was more just the last monarch who had been alive while the atrocities of her grandmother were underway and still affecting millions of people worldwide. And still no apology. Yeah, people rejoiced. She is dead. Like, ding dong, the witch is dead. Ding dong, the witch is dead. <laughs> ding ding. <laughs> people thought, hey, now finally, maybe the Kohinoor will be returned. But Can we get it back now? But to whom? Whom should it be returned to? Exactly. Like, that's... Who should it go to? Who would it go to? Indians felt that Ranjit Singh was an Indian king. He was a Sikh king. So he has claimed it for India. But he was the king of Lahore, which is now in Pakistan. So I bet Pakistanis feel equally right in their claim to yeah. the Koinur. Over the years, even Iran and Afghanistan have laid claim to this cursed diamond. So I don't know who it should go to. <laughs> I think it, we need to just throw it into the skeleton lake. Yes. There That's where it needs to go. Like Excalibur. Yeah. Just find a volcano. deserves it in the future, <laughs> we'll find it. It's like literally just a shiny rock. <laughs> Garbage. <laughs> Break it. Like, here, you get some, you get some. It's still cursed, even though it's smaller. Have fun. I like yeah. that idea. It's fun. I watched Mean Girls the other day when she breaks the crown. You're the <laughs> homecoming. <laughs> Aren't they like, don't they like start crying or something? Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. This 99 cent store crown. Yeah. Oh. So while the British royals today are reduced to mere taxpayer pets... They are still powerful, and they will never give up the Kohinoor. However, they have repatriated many bronze, wooden, and other artifacts of less intrinsic value to several countries. Just not the Kohinoor, because tickets to see the Kohinoor and other stolen jewels from all over the world in the Tower of London is £30 per person. Good heavens. Three million visitors come to see them annually. You do the math, because I suck at it. I was going to say, don't ask me. <laughs> a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Is that like 9 million, 90 million a year? I don't know. So they're still raking in the dough from this. It just never ends. The Kohinoor is a cash cow. Never to be returned. A stone wrenched in blood and surrounded in misery. Now logic and reasoning would say that the curse is uh, false. Right? Like, who believes in curses? Superstitions? Yeah. And everyone in the royal family are absolutely happy and full of joy. They have perfect lives and perfect families, right? And the UK got to have Boris for some time. So, I don't know. It sounds like a good, good little curse nugget. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've paid some, but not enough. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I like to believe that the curse of the Kohinoor is true after all. And I yeah. hope that whoever holds it continues Suffers. to suffer till yeah. they, like Alex said, just throw it into the ocean. Give it up. Because yeah. it is a symbol of death. But throw it into the Indian Ocean. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Brilliant. 
<laughs> so is it King Charles's or is it Camilla's? He can never wear the crown as per Victoria's will. So his consort, who is Camelia Parker, she's going to have it on her head if she decides oh, to. She's cursed. See what you did to Diana. You're going to karma. It's coming back for you. <laughs> so that was our little story about the Kohinoor and its tragic journey through the ages and how it kind of ended with Dilip Singh's misery. Thanks, Queen Victoria. <laughs> I was prepared for some, you know, harsh harshness with this, but it was a lot, a lot worse than what I imagined. I'm, my God. I'm sorry it got too long, but, you know, I just had to give you all these details to give you a... No, you're a fine. Picture. I'm sitting here like, you know, I'm watching a show. I mean, I'm like, yes, tell me more. Keep going. <laughs> It's nice to not be driving while, <laughs> while I'm focused on you guys. Well, like one thing I think is kind of interesting is that like this is, you know, this is a story about subjugation of like the highest echelon of a, not even one society, but a bunch of societies. Because as you said, India wasn't one country. It was a group of kingdoms. So you can only imagine how that cruelty like filtered down to people who like weren't, didn't have the privilege in India even. So yeah. They're like If the wealthy are suffering, you can only imagine how bad the poverty stricken are. Right. So, oh my God. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I'm going to go light some incense and pray for all these souls. <laughs> so, yeah, the poorest of the poor died. That's that's it. They had to pay with their lives. Gut-wrenching. And all for, like you said, a shiny rock. Like, I, I and I'm, I don't mean that by taking away any of the cultural or, or historical value that it was placed onto it. But in my eyes, I'm like, I get diamonds, they're rare, but it's a shiny rock. It is... No human life is worth a shiny rock. Seriously. Unless Lady Gaga gave it to me, and then <laughs> you're never getting in out of my cold dead <laughs> And I'll stab you if I try to take it. Right. <laughs> Come at me. Yeah. Yeah. So I Ugh. think all like our Desi listeners, but also all listeners, and everyone needs to boycott the Jewel Tower until all yes, don't go to the Tower of London. get in for free. <laughs> With the gift bag. You guys yeah. earn that gift bag. And it better be yeah. good. No generic. They should have like a scanner where you put your arm and if you're like the right shade of brown, you're like, free! <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. This, Is that's, that racist? <laughs> bring your 23 and me. It just, it just, it can end well. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> DNA report. We'll see. I could, you know, I could go to a tanning bed a few times and, you know, I might be able to, well, That's you, true. I'd be red. I don't tan. <laughs> I freckle and we'll burn. We'll teach you a few Hindi phrases and you can get in. There we go. <laughs> you think I, they delete <laughs> What did they know? What did they know? <laughs> you don't know my life. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, if anyone's like um, getting together a ragtag group of... High tech thieves like Mission Impossible. Heist? Yeah. Oceans, Anyone planning a oceans. heist? You know, consider this as your next project. Tower of London. It looks so stupid. I'm sure you can get in. I bet. I know there is a dungeon there that was used 
far too recently than it should have been. <laughs> yes, it was a prison for like, I don't know what, that, up until a thousand years ago, it was a prison. So not a happy And now place. you can go see the world's <laughs> richest diamonds inside this old prison for 30 pounds. Oh, I have a little uh, tidbit regarding the leap. So as you know, I play a lot of video games and one of my favorite franchises is Assassin's Creed. I love that game. And so Prince Dulip is actually a character in Assassin's Creed. Oh, wow. So it's set in London in, in one of the games. He's, it's set in London and he's like battling his loss of identity and he wants to get back at the British. So he's actually a character in the game. That's awesome. Love that. I love historically accurate ga like video game. Like that. And amazing. I keep coming back to Assassin's Creed because a lot of cases we cover, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. This character's in Assassin's Creed. <laughs> there must still be a lot of Indians working on the game. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to learn Greek, today. Egyptian, Greek, all kinds of historical characters. It's just an amazing game. So yeah, that, that was something I found really amusing. It makes me want to start taking up video games. I wonder how many episodes we've plugged Assassin's Creed just for free. <laughs> you guys need to start getting a I check. Know, we need to um, call them. <laughs> like, hey. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but you owe me money. <laughs> All right. Well, ladies, thank you so much for allowing me to join you on your podcast. I am thrilled. And now that it's over, my nerves have settled down. I'm always nervous I'm going to say something just completely ridiculous and people are going to be like what is wrong with you so i'm glad i didn't i hope i think you and i are in competition for that like response because i always feel that i way could too. tell from listening to you on your podcast i was like we're gonna have you know we seem like very similar people definitely i'm even like looking at your room i was like this looks kind of like my room but with more golden girl stuff intertwined into it right thank you so much for having us over josh this was an amazing collaboration i was so excited to tell the story so that everyone gets to know about the colonial devils and joins me in passionately well not hating yes them, but calling them out yeah as soon as you were like what would you like to do it on i'm like i don't need to even think because i already know <laughs> mainly just for me i was like i want to know because I'm one of those, I'd rather hear someone tell me the history than just looking it up and reading it myself. And especially when I love your guys' voices, they're so soothing to me. <laughs> like, I've fallen asleep to you guys so many times. Aww, thank you. <laughs> I'm excited to hear this e episode with all of us. Like, I think it's me a too. really good one. And all of you Indian or... What are you, do Daisy. you say Desi? Am I Daisy? Am I well something, you know, I'm American, so some things I'm hesitant. I'm like, can yes, I say that can. too? <laughs> okay. Well, um, all of you, I hope you enjoy uh my accent is called Hillbilly, and I'm sorry <laughs> if you <laughs> if it's hard to get all my words, but I appreciate you guys giving me this opportunity and maybe in the future we can do it again sometime. Of course. Thank you so much. And just a little plug for our podcast. We host a podcast called Crimes from the East. We cover South Asian true crime and also some strange phenomenon. So curious tales about UFOs and skeleton lakes and reincarnation. Just things that don't really have an easy explanation. 
That's what we cover on our podcast. So wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening to Josh right now, go look for us and find <laughs> us, Crimes from the East. And I am Josh from Rotten to the Core. You can find me on Instagram, Crimes from the East as well. That's where Pia and I have been communicating mostly. And you can find me as well wherever you listen to your podcast. And this will be coming out in January. So happy new year, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be just a few weeks. Heavens. Oh, I'm not ready. 2023 can stay away. I'm not yeah. ready yet. I turn 33 next year. I'm not too soon. Listen, I turned <laughs> 21 this year. I mean, not really. Add 19 years to that. What was but 21? <laughs> That's why I was like, what? I mean, I had 19 years to that, but you know, whatever. What is that store called? Forever 21. Forever 21. Yeah. For I us. finally stopped shopping there when I was like 34. And I was like, I know I can't do math, but I think I should stop shopping there. It's been a while. <laughs> but it's so cute. <laughs> it's been a while since I was 20. Where else am I supposed to buy my plastic tiaras? I mean, <laughs> garbage right. fast fashion. Where else can I get it? <laughs> well ladies you have a great rest of your day and again thank you so much i appreciate it thanks right. again yeah namaste, namaste. bye namaste bye, bye. <laughs>